Part two, chapter one of Lillian by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter one, the suicide. The next morning, Lillian left her lodging at the customary hour of eight fifteen to join one of the hundreds of hastening, struggling, preoccupied processions of workers that converged upon central London. She had slept for ten hours without a break on the previous day risen hungry to a confused and far too farinaceous tea, done some dressmaking by the warmth of an oil-stove, and gone to bed again for another enormous period of heavy slumber. She was well refreshed, her complexion was restored to its marvellous perfectness, and life seemed simpler, more promising, and more agreeably exciting than usual. She had convinced herself that the Irish lord would call at the office in person to pay his bill, the mysterious and yet thoroughly understood code that governs certain human relations would forbid him either to post a cheque or to send his man with the money. Her only fear was that he might already have called. But even if he had already called, he would call and call again on one good pretext or another until, anyhow, they would meet, and so on, according to the inconsequent logic of daydreams in the everlasting night of the tube. The dreamer had a seat in the train, one of the advantages of living near the terminus. But strap-hangers of both sexes swayed in clusters over her, and along the whole length of the car, and both the platforms were too densely populated. She could not read. Nobody could read. As the train roared and shook through Down Street Station, she jumped up to fight her way through strap-hangers towards the platform, in readiness to descend at Dover Street. On these early trains, carrying serious people, if you sat quiet until the train came to your station, you would assuredly be swept on to the next station. These trains taught you to meet the future half-way. As it happened, the train stopped about a hundred yards short of Dover Street, and would not move on. Seconds and minutes passed, and the stoppage became undeniably a breakdown. The tunnels under the earth from Dover Street back to Hammersmith were full of stopped trains a few hundred yards apart, and every train was full of serious people who positively had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Lillian's mood changed, the mood of the car changed, and of the train, and of all the trains. No one knew anything, no one could do anything. The trains were each a prison. The railway company, by its officials, maintained a masterly silence as to the origin of the vast inconvenience and calamity. Rumours were borne by spontaneous generation— Hitherto one of God's quite minor achievements, was suddenly gifted with divination, and announced that the electricians at the power station in Lotts Road had gone on strike without notice, and every electric train in London had been paralysed. Half an hour elapsed. The prisoners, made desperate by the prospect of the fate which attended them, spoke of revolution and homicide, well aware that they were just as capable of these things as a flock of sheep. Then, as inexplicably as it had stopped, the train started. Two minutes later, Lillian, with some scores of other girls, was running madly through Dover Street in vain pursuit of time lost and vanished. Not a soul had guessed the cause of the disaster, which, according to the evening papers, was due to an old, unhappy man who had wandered unobserved into the tunnel from Dover Street Station, with the ambition to discover for himself what the next world was like. This ambition had been gratified. As Lillian, in a state of nervous exhaustion, flew on tired wings up the office stairs, 
she of course had to compose herself into a semblance of bright virginal freshness for the day's work, conformable with the employer's theory that until he reaches the office the employee has done and suffered nothing whatever. And Miss Grigg was crossing the anteroom at the moment of Lillian's entry. "'You're twenty-five minutes late, Miss Cher,' said Miss Grigg coldly. She looked very ill. "'So sorry, Miss Grigg,' Lillian answered with unprotesting humility, and offered no explanation. Useless to explain, useless to assert innocence and victimization. Excuses founded on the vagaries of trains were unacceptable in that office, as in thousands of offices. Employers refused to take the least interest in trains or other means of conveyance. One of the girls in the room called the Large Room had once told Lillian that, living at Ilford, she would leave home on foggy mornings at six o'clock, in order to be sure of a prompt arrival in Clifford Street at nine o'clock, thus allowing three hours for little more than a dozen miles. But only in the Book of Doomsday was this detail entered to her credit. Miss Grigg, even if she had heard of it, which she had not, would have dismissed it as of no importance. Yet Miss Grigg was a just woman. Uh, "'Come into my room, Miss Cher, will you please?' said Miss Grigg. Lillian, apprehending she knew not what, thought to herself bitterly that lateness for a delicious shopping appointment, or a heavenly appointment to lunch at the Savoy, or to motor up the river, affairs of true importance, would have been laughed off as negligible, whereas lateness at this filthy office was equivalent to embezzlement. And she resolved anew, and with the most terrible determination, to escape at no matter what risks from the servitude and the famine of sentiment in which she existed. End of Part 2 Chapter 1